Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. June the 24th, 2011, Paris. Three people are indicted for organized fraud, forgery, and are placed into custody by the French judicial system. Max Cassini, the flamboyant owner of Stade Francais, who'd spent over 30 million euros during his reign and had taken them from the fourth division in 1995 to five-time French champions, is forced to sell the club in order to avoid bankruptcy and relegation. Naked calendars, audacious pink kits, gladiatorial pre-match entertainment, strippers, suicide, naked celebrity fans, titles, homophobia, and bankruptcy. This is the story of the rise and fall of Max Cassini, rugby's greatest ever owner. His genius is, is unparalleled in the fact that he captured the imagination, he had the superstars, he had the branding, he had his own quirks, everything worked together. He totally transformed the face of rugby. He's a free spirit, he's a lunatic, but he's brilliant. He ended up after, what, 20 years, 25 years as the Stade Francais president by actually selling the club for a euro. Bernard Laporte was about Bernard Laporte, and that's why I think Max got his fingers burnt. I think he trusted him too much. Now he'd come in at half-time if we were playing crap, smash the water bottles up, you know, tell you we're all fucking crap, that it's shit, that he's going to tear, tear your contracts up, you're playing like sons of bitches, tears in his eyes and, and storm off. So he doesn't need a second invite, he drops all his cacks on, takes his suit off from where else, plunges straight in with the boys. Madonna sort of left there standing. For me, rugby is an adventure, an adventure human. C'est partir sur un bateau à la recherche d'un trésor, qui est le titre de champion. If you want to narrow it down to the professional era of French rugby, 1000% he's the most influential person. In order to understand Max's achievements fully, we have to detail the history of the sport, which would change not only his, but hundreds of thousands of Parisians' lives. Rugby, although played in France since the 1870s, is a sport which is predominantly still played in the southwest of the country. Ben Kayser, who at one point was the only Parisian in the French squad, explains its complicated history. Rugby is, is, is born in the southwest of France, so it's sort of Toulouse, capital of rugby. Historically, it was La Soule, which was like an ancient game where it was basically some sort of ball that was between two villages. And the only rule was get the ball in the other village. People got the gist of mauling and scrumming and fighting for each other and tackling and all that stuff. And then obviously comes with a beautiful game from, from the city of rugby. I think maybe through universities or something, it then crossed the, the channel and got to Paris. And actually, it started in the universities of Paris. And so Stade Francais and, and racing at the time were, were basically one of the first historic clubs. So it's funny because if you look at the number of times they were French champions, racing and Stade are like pretty, pretty high in the overall ranking. But I think between 19, what it is, 1910 and 1960, there was only three clubs actually playing that championship. 
And then after that, if you fast forward a long, long time, obviously to the, to the glimpse of professional rugby that arrived, Toulouse was still the capital city. Toulouse is, is the most successful club in the history of, of this sport in France. And Stade Francais was miles behind at the time. And what happened is that Stade Francais, I think, was pretty much between the equivalent of National 2 and National 3 for years, going up and down, up and down, not really having a, a strong culture. And Max started getting interested. Max Cusini was a lawyer-turned-radio mogul who had taken private radio station NRG from its inception in a small room in Paris to becoming the biggest radio station in Europe and had made millions in the process. He decided to buy saint Francais when they were in the fourth division and take them back to become the French champions. But what was Max like as a person? Ollie Phillips, who was crowned Foreign Player of the Year under him at Stade, recalls his memories. Yeah, the, the man, the myth, the legend type stuff. You know, obviously he was iconic and famous for his sort of parties and whatever else like that. And so if, if you like, his reputation preceded him more just for being, you know, a wild, crazy party bloke. But actually there was so much more to him than that. He bought the club when it was in the sort of second division of French rugby doing absolutely nothing and transformed it, right? Transformed it into the sort of Parisian powerhouse that it became. But how did Max take Stade from the doldrums of the fourth division of French rugby to becoming French champions in five years? Max started to say, well, there's such a shame in Paris. There's this beautiful club, Stade Francais. I need to do something about it. And what he did is he got Stade Francais from National 2 all the way to top 14. And how he did it is because he sold the Paris dream to a lot of guys. And he's just a recruitment genius. He would get personalities. Come and do something life-changing where you're going to be edgy. When you do something that nobody else has ever done before. So they were in second division, but they still had French internationals in there. That's when... Bernard Laporte arrived as coach, and the Serge Simon, who's now vice president of the federation, and uh, Vincent Moscato, and Jean Bert, that uh, Les Raptou, it was called. And, they were, and he would just sign guys after guys like that. But all he sold to them was the dream. Pom-pom girls around a uh, pitch, nightning jerseys, because that's what Stade Francais was. The big pink jerseys were way, way after that. But just something edgy, out there, crazy. He would ask them to, to wear suits to go to games, where nobody else would ever wear suits at that time. It wasn't a way of acting posh. It was a way of acting different. And so he got them all the way up. And so when I arrived at Stade Francais, they just won after that incredible journey of going up and up a, a level every single year. They just won equivalent of top 14. And it's the first time ever that a promoted from second division team wins it the following year in top 14. It's never happened before. And I don't think it's ever happened since. And I don't think it will ever happen uh, again. There's two sides to Max. There's his creative genius, his marketing genius, his edgy, outside-the-box thinking, who's a little bit bonkers, and then there's the businessman. And I will tell you, if anybody ever mistakes that marketing genius as weakness, you're fools. He's absolutely no, not weak. He, is, he has manhandled thousands of rugby players by getting them to sign contracts purely pushing on their emotional attractivity to the club, absolutely drilling them to the ground. He was unbeatable in a negotiation. You know, you would be speaking about wanting to play for the French team and he would tell you, by the way, you're not allowed to cut your hair without asking me. What, what are you talking about? Oh, no, because you look so ugly. What, what am I going to do with an ugly player? I can't put you in the French team if you're ugly. You're going to represent Stade Francais. You know, and you were actually talking about money and, and career and stuff and he would just 
co completely put you off. And in the end, he had everybody in their pockets. And everybody was taking the piss about the pink jerseys. They stopped taking the piss when they realized how big it was. Everybody was taking the piss about the naked calendars. They stopped straight away when they saw that how much of a success it was. Everybody was taking the piss about his obsession about playing league games in Stade de France. He used to fill up Stade de France, 80,000 people. I know the Harlequins call it the big game, don't they, in December? He did it six times a year, mate. James Haskell is one of the most famous rugby players of the last 25 years, both on and off the pitch. And when he saw what was happening at Stad, he asked his agent to get him out there ASAP so that he could be part of the revolution. But what was his first recollection of meeting his new chairman? The first time I met Max, I basically got naked in front of him on a roof, in a cold rooftop in, in the heart of Paris. He gave me a couple of glasses of red wine and while I was getting spray painted naked and we sort of had a bit of a, you know, a, bit of a conversation, my French was very much like, that policeman in a low low or, you know, Del boy. But it's amazing when I got drunk, how much I'd be able to speak to Max. One of Max's most successful creations was the Dieu de Stade calendar, which not only spread the word of Stade into previously untapped markets, but also was a crucial generator for the club. James Haskell explains how important it was personally to Max. Yeah, it was his baby. He turned the non-existent calendar into the biggest selling calendar in Europe, the biggest selling gay calendar in the world. It's art. Put willies in black and white, it's art. He was directing everything. You know, the photographer was there, a guy called Tony Duran. Max obviously was involved in the process, but was choosing it, you know, sort of had storyboarded the whole thing. So, yeah, he was fully, fully in the mix of it. In order to attract prisons to 10 games, Max had to completely rip up the rule book and put on incredible shows off the pitch whilst fielding an equally impressive team on it. Ollie Phillips reveals how amazing it was to be part of it all. Awesome for me to be a part of, to be honest with you. Like, it was just an absolute privilege to be involved in that. I, I had to pinch myself, bearing in mind I was coming from playing for Newcastle with one man and his dog turning up to suddenly 80,000 people. And I, I mean, that, that was Max as well, right? I mean, no one had ever thought he could get 80,000 people to a game of rugby, a club game of rugby. And yet here he was staging five or six of them a season. Just an absolute hero of a bloke. And then not only that, he turned it into the, the circus that it was by having Moulin Rouge girls, massive fireworks and lights dis displays. And it, it made rugby into a show. And people loved it. It was visionary, right? It was a total disruptor, an icon. My first game, Perpignan at home, Stade de France, 80,000 people. So I walked out from the changing room, the tunnel of the Stade de France, and lining all the way onto the pitch, 40 topless Moulin Rouge women. I was like, what the fuck is this? Walk onto the field, there's a wrestling ring that's elevated 20 feet in the air. And then you've got dirt bikes that are jumping over the top of the ring on the middle of the field. It's just out of this world. You're like, what the hell is this place? This is you know, incredible. Stade Francais Stadium had a capacity of 10,000 at the time. So how did Mats go about attracting another 70,000 plus to attend their games at the Stade de France? Ben Kayser reveals how he did it. So he created a show. His whole idea was to create an event. He wanted to do something different. So he wanted women to come to play the games, to watch the games. He wanted children to be involved. He wanted young people to come. So he made it trendy. He made it fun. Originally, in, in when the club was in the equivalent of fourth or fifth division, he gave out free seats nonstop. It's like, come and see this thing. It wasn't about money. It was about creating the attraction, creating this special thing. Once Jean Boin was full, again, because it was good fun, he would put cheerleaders that would, you know, cheer the guys on, on and off the pitch and stuff. Nothing ever done before. He would get, you know, some singers to come at halftime and stuff. And even in, in second division, he used to do that. 
for the tee, you know, the tee, the kicking tee? He's the first guy that had that controllable car from the side. And everybody thought it was hilarious. It's just tiny ideas. Every fun idea, he's got them all. We did the calendar. What else can we do that's crazy? Are we going to do pink jerseys? Okay, what else can we do? Oh, cheerleaders. Okay, I, I don't know if anybody has ever been to the Stade de France for 80,000 people. Number one, there was at least 20,000 seats or maybe 15,000 seats that were given for about five to 10 bucks a ticket and only to schools and only to under 18s or stuff. So it was really a popular, popular way of saying, come and enjoy the show. He got a chopper, you know, to deliver a guy from the special forces to shoot down on the pitch and give the ball, which was rounded up by gold. And when you open up that gold thing, the ball was inside. And I will see it was like a, a Moulin Rouge, you know, um, the dancers in the Moulin Rouge in Paris that would come and pick up that ball and give it. And she's there with all her, the, the feathers. And I mean, it was just completely bananas. I think he got a horse and cart one year to come and go around the Stade de France pitch to deliver the ball. Yes, it was mad. Yes, it was crazy, but everybody spoke about it. And everybody wanted to be part of that special thing. For one game, uh, there was actually not a lot of space to warm up. And sort of the rugby was was important because he was massively keen about that. But it was the spectacle, you know, and the whole thing was just incredible. And I think he gave some seats away. Everyone had a pink flag. And it was just a ridiculous atmosphere. Um, from live music, halftime, you know, like a halftime show, like a Super Bowl show. And nobody else was doing this at the time. They loved that kind of whole event over there. And Max was the king of them. You know, he used to just put, like I said, put these mad, mad things. I even remember one game, you know, we ran out against Toulouse and the pitch was frozen. And we should never have played it. Like it was, uh, but he was never going to call the game off. And it was like, you know, I remember running out to and doing like a warm up shuttle and honestly skidded on the top of the pitch. Like my studs didn't stick into it. I was like, oh my God, this is all. And they sort of had this tiny section, but obviously you just had to get on with it. And it was, you know, there was no way he was going to cancel the elephants and the, the, the riders and live music and sing alongs. You know, they used to sing the song, Old Champs Elysees, everyone be fireworks. Mate, it was mad. He was obviously a very kind and loving chairman. But did he get angry when things went wrong? No, he'd come in at half time if we were playing crap, smash the water bottles up, tell you all fucking crap, that you're shit, that he's going to tear, tear your contracts up, you're playing like sons of bitches, tears in his eyes and, and storm off at times. You know, he mellowed as he got older, but I saw that firsthand. But you kind of want that. Obviously, it's a trade-off between, there's no point having a dog and barking. You don't employ a coach and then try to coach a side. But, you know, he was very emotional, Max. You know, I saw him cry a number of times when things were hard because he lived and breathed that team. He put his money into it. He put his soul into it. He put his life into it. And if he didn't feel it was being reflected on the field, he'd come in. But he'd be the first one in there to congratulate you. You know, for some people, it's a rich boy's toy. But for Max, it was a, it was a way of life. It was a passion. You know, he really wanted to see Paris do well. Paris was important to him. And I think he was the be- one of the best owners, if not the best owner I ever had. But how is playing for Max different from playing under other previous owners? Stade Francais was a love and a passion for him. It was, it was an art from everything. I remember with Adidas, the shirt design every year was like a, an art piece. It was kept under lock and key. Nobody ever saw it. Nobody was allowed to know anything about it. It was this big reveal. He elevated the club from what was a good club to an iconic club. Max loved to be the centre of attention and had a lot of celebrity friends from his days at running NRG who he used to invite to watch Dad. But did he ever bring any of the celebs in to meet the players afterwards? Yeah, I mean, loads. So it's that game, it's that Perpignan game. We just played, we beat them. And at the end, Max comes in the, the change room and all the boys get excited when Max comes in. Because as I said, he treats you like family. He's part of the family. So they, it's not like a conventional club owner coming in. It's like your dad slash best mate coming in. But this time Max had brought a special guest to him and it turned out to be Madonna. But as he walked in the changing room, all the boys getting excited and 
matches for an ounce and sort of fairly, being fairly well endowed. So they're all making snake noises, like slapping their legs and giving it a dud dud like this him. And he's obviously playing to the crowd. Matt Max is a gregarious gay guy, so he played to it as much as he could, so he loved it. So he's there, and then they realise it's Madonna that's coming. He, he loves to make a big speech. J'aimerais bien vous présenter Madonna, mon ami. This big sort of fanfare. And all the boys get super excited. The French, just, it doesn't take a lot to get them overexcited. So they're all wandering around, a lot of them like half naked, or some of them already naked, so they're about to go into the showers. But they're sort of like, lack of virgin, woo! All spinning around or whatever. Anyway, we're all in the showers and Max doesn't need a second invite to come and have a, a cheeky a perv or whatever else. So he's, he comes around the corner pretending to sort of want to speak to somebody or whatever else, brings Madonna with him. And all the boys are in there naked and we still have the, the communal baths. Well, there's like seven or eight of the lads in the communal bath. They all start splashing and doing the snake noises at Max. So he doesn't need a second invite. He drops all his cacks on, takes his suit off from where up, plunges straight in with the boys. Madonna sort of left there standing. All the boys sort of start waving her in, and I think you know, she sort of stood, stood there like a bit of a lemming, doesn't really know what to do. So all the, a couple of the lads, Pascal Pape, definitely I can remember, they all stand up naked, doing a bit of puppetry, the penis at her, and the helicopter, the hamburger, the atom bomb. But I'm there sort of pinching myself, like, what the hell's going on? And before I know it, to be fair, she was really fun and took all her clothes off, got down to her bra and pants, and jumped in the bath, all the lads. And I was like, oh my God, this is an opportunity I can't miss out on. So there was me in my sort of pants in the shower, trying to be all sort of discreet. Then when I was in it, I was like, actually, I'm in a bath full of naked lads with Madonna. Max would come and talk to you sometimes during the, in the, by the shower. And I, I remember, um, no, nothing inappropriate, but I, I remember I got obviously excited. I think I'd played very well, I got man of the match. And I was showering and laughing. And I remember saying to Max, hey, Max, do you want a bit of this? And he went, no, it's too small. And everyone was like, ah, I was like, shit. Rugby is obviously still very much a conservative traditional sport in France. So how did all this innovation and brass entertainment get perceived by the old school guard? Did he face abuse from other presidents and fans? I remember the whole of Southwest France was very critical at first about, oh, what are these guys doing? You know, look at them. And obviously there would be homophobic comments, definitely. Definitely. And that's obviously down to him and to the way that he did things, but it's also down to the pink jersey. And again, but the best the best story is the, the pink jerseys came out in Perpignan in 2006, something like that. Perpignan is as old school as it gets. They're not particularly forward thinking in terms of tradition rugby is let's get, you know, let's let's settle for 80 minutes on the pitch and then we'll see. And Max brought those jerseys that day and he, he set out the normal pink, the pink ones and he set out the normal blue ones. And he's like, boys, you choose. Not one guy was particularly like, didn't want to make a statement over uh, gay rights and, and all that. Not one guy was, oh, we're, gonna, we're doing marketing now and it's great because somebody's going to see us in Japan. And not one guy thought about that. Everybody thought, hey, Perpignan, not only are we going to beat you, but we're going to beat you by wearing a pink jersey. That was the attitude. That was the way of saying any challenge that comes on, we, we grab it by the horn and let's go. And that really was the mentality that fed into everyone. So there wasn't any public fallouts, I think, by the, by the, um, in the Southwest. There 100% was a lot of dark, bad noise with some stupid comments. And we would get insulted a lot, the team, whenever we came down to the South. But as soon as you start winning, meh, then the, the, the comments, you know, change. And as soon as you get some top guys, top internationals who were keen, actually, to come up to Paris, and they were keen to experience that, then things change. And that, 
that bitterness and that um, small little criticism turn into respect. When you're a disruptor, you're changing the game, right? You're doing something different from everybody else. And you know, rugby as a sport is quite traditional, particularly in France. I can vouch, like even from a playing perspective, they were 10 years behind the curve, but they live for the tradition. And never I'd been in a club where lunch was two hours and it was with wine and foie gras and whatever else before you go and train in the afternoon. I mean, that was just utterly absurd for me. But Max definitely would have broken a few eggs to make the omelette that he made. But with it, he elevated the French league, the French game and Stade Francais to just a whole another level. The Jeu de Stade, this bright pink, colourful jersey that we had, that attracted people that you know didn't really care about rugby. And that was all Max that did that. No one else had the foresight or the wisdom or the clarity or even the ability to execute and make that happen. That's why Max was amazing. Ben Kayser was Max's golden child, having been the first player in a generation to ride through Stad's academy and play consistently for France. But over time, even he grew to get frustrated with Max. There's a few things in the calendar I thought he was pushing, uh, but that's just my, my personal views. There's a few things in terms of promoting the calendar. He would ask guys to come and do TV shows and stuff. I just thought it was a bit... It's a bit much. The mindset of being overly confident, but then flirting with arrogance at the time. We did not win all the time. And these are the moments where I would have said, um, I would have said, uh, I really agree. But at the end, unfortunately, because that's that's a, not a tragic story because nobody died, but he ended up after, what, 20 years, 25 years as the Stade Francais president by actually selling the club for a euro. And, and they took on the debt. And so every single sweat of his and his money and his involvement and his ideas and all those things, we were running out of steam a little bit. So all those ideas you felt were a little bit, a bit too far-reached and then it ended up causing financial detriment and, and, and almost collapsed the club. But that's to tell you how generous and genuine a good person he is. He didn't make a fuss, did he? Nobody sort of knows about this. But instead of leaving the club go to bankruptcy, he sold absolutely everything he had of the club for one euro, but the new owners would take on the debt. He left with nothing. James Haskell, for the majority of the time, had an impeccable friendship with Max. But did they ever come to blows? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So basically, I had in my contract to be released for international games. I was in the autumn internationals. and Basically, I wasn't selected in the England squad, uh, but, but Martin Johnson wanted to keep me um, to train with the guys and not let me play. I wanted to go black paper stad. Max was like, well, if you're not involved, we need you to come back. Um, and I said, listen, it's in the contract anyway. We went to talk about it and then Max just took half my monthly salary and just never gave it back. And then um, and then basically when I said to him that we need it back, he just said, look, you can sue us, but it wasn't an agreement and that's it. And it would have cost more to get the money back. So he just got half the wages and that was it. And that's the French way. They're like, listen, if you don't like it, fuck off. I was like, well, there's nothing I can do. So yeah, that was it. And then obviously I, I wanted to stay and do another year, but you know, the club had. My first year had three coaches in one year. Then we had Michael Checker, who was really good. But then the club, unfortunately, got sold to, you know, you get those emails from like businessmen who are like, you know, you've won four million Ugandan dollars. You just need to do a bank transfer. I think from what I'm led to believe, essentially the club got sold to someone like that and they fucked Max. And then Max ended up selling the club for not or not to a SIM card giant and unfortunately lost a lot of it and got fucked over which is very sad I think because it was his without Max it's not really sad In 2010 things were starting to go rapidly wrong with the finances at Stad as Ollie Phillips recalls witnessing firsthand. I was there I was there when it all happened bear in mind I moved to Stad in 2009 and that is coming off the back of a massive global recession right there that was going on at that point in time 
I don't think it had really sort of trickled down and percolated into to professional sport at that point. Stad and Max was a very big, very vibrant club. We had the largest, I think we're either number one or number two in terms of the payroll and Max lived and breathed it. He spent big, it, 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 we were big, everything about it. So I remember we were, Michael Checker was there. We were 24 hours away from basically you know, being relegated, you know, demoted, relegated, thrown out of the league taken down because I, I don't know the exact rules and regs but in French League you have to have and prove to the league that you have a certain amount of money being kept basically in reserve to support the club going wrong and I think Max had I don't know, mismanaged that or manipulated that and 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 they and had been found out basically I think what happened the problem was he papered over all the cracks and wanted to still live that high life and that you know live the dizzy heights of all the success years and the reality was that Probably for three or four years, Stad hadn't really been as successful as it had been. And as a result, that hit hard. The club was on its hands and knees. There were no assets. There's a brand, but there's no asset. The stadium is not theirs. The training facilities are not theirs. So the ticket income wasn't that extraordinary. The calendar is good, but it doesn't, it doesn't make millions. Well, it doesn't make tens of millions, whatever. It doesn't make the whole industry go. That is what started the whole shebang. The money was already spent and never came in. And that big chunk of difference never got uh, made up. And that big chunk of difference was not made up because the year after, there's also a sporting reality that Stad didn't win anything between 2007 and 2015. So those eight years were long. Did the players realize how dire the financial situation was? Or was that kept a secret? Yeah, because they asked me, they asked us if we could take a salary cut and do everything else. And I was like, I was like, no. You know, like we, we always got to so listen, we're, we're doing our job. And then we signed on this. Like I'm not, until I see the financials, until I see what's going on, we're not going to do that. Um, but it, well, yeah, we knew it was, it was in a spot of bother. We knew things had to change. And we were trying to, you know, we were trying to do lots of things to make sure we got, we got it right on the field. But it just, look, it's, it, the problem with rugby is, you know, the, especially with those salary caps or the size of the salary stuff, you know, if you're not doing the business on the field, you're not getting the revenue in, you're always stuffed, you know, it's not sustainable. But that's why things like the calendar, all the other business stuff was so important. With no assets and millions being spent on players' wages every year, even in the good times, was Stad and Max making any money? In the good days, they definitely weren't losing money. Definitely not. You know how it works. The, a club is not made to make, is not uh, put together to make money and put it on the side and wait. As soon as you have money, you spend it. You spend it on players, you spend it on trips, you spend it on, on facilities, you spend it on material. Money is generated to be spent straight away. And that's what they did. And then also remember, there was a moment where Let's face it, the Christophe Dominici, Sylvain Marconnet, Peter De Villiers, all those guys definitely, definitely were getting paid at least 30% less than any of their other uh, French team members, all of them. Max was the only person I remember that would tell you, right, you're going to get paid this much by the club and this much by the French team. And the boys were like, well, hang on, I'm not in the French team yet. And that's, that's my money. That's not the club's money. Yeah, yeah, but if you're in the French team, it's thanks to Stade Français anyway. He would do all those calculations. They definitely, definitely were getting underpaid, all of them. But they stayed there and they knew it. But they stayed there because they loved the place. They loved Max. They loved the club. They loved the culture. They loved the success that was, that was uh, with it. They, they believed in it 1,000%. And then 10 years later, all the clubs are getting paid more and more everywhere. Else. And then you see the, the one guy leaves and then one other guy leaves. Not just money, but also more money and potentially more titles because the titles weren't in Paris anymore after 2007. So it's, it's a long, gradual going down, but that money that were made in good years was never kept. 
Several legal documents seem to point the blame at Bernard Lepore for introducing a commercial media company called Sports 5 to Max and Stad. Sports 5 turned out to be the crooks who lost all of Stad's money. So do you feel that Lepore somewhat used and abused Max before jumping ship? Yeah, I think that for me is probably where Max's naive side came into things a little bit, right? I think Bernard Laporte is an operator, a proper operator, and in the end came got links to the mafia and and whatever else, right? So, uh, and, and Max wasn't like that at all. Now that was not Max's fabric. He was he was the free spirit. He was the creative. He was about making people happy, right? That's that's what he's all about. That was his his, his esprit de corps was around creating this amazing, compelling, beautiful, beautiful rugby team on and off the field. Bernard Laporte was about Bernard Laporte. And that's why I think Max got his fingers burnt. I think he trusted him too much. Bernard Laporte obviously thrived on, on Max's connections and energy and just modernity because he represented modern rugby. He represents success, yes, but a new way of doing things. And so that's what got him the French job. And then he became Minister of Sports. And then he went to the Toulon job. And then, you know, there was all those things that Bernard Laporte just uh, owes a lot to Max to properly recognize that fire in him that he saw in him and Dominici and all these guys and, and give him the, the opportunity and, um, and the scene and the platform to, to, to exploit it. it. It's a mix of both. I think if you ask Bernard Laporte, he says he owes anything to Max. And if you ask Max, he says he owes a lot to Bernard because without him, that team would have not got, never got where it was. He was the perfect man for that perfect job. It will need a lot more than an argument and a proper fallout for the friendship between Max and Bernard to ever break. So there was no scaredness about it. He didn't leave him in the shits. He left him in a complicated situation. And I think they're still very, very close. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom terms apply. An even greater tragedy for Max, which trooped the collapse of Stad in terms of emotional damage, was the death by suicide of his greatest friend, former player and coach in Christophe Dominici in 2020. Christophe's life fell apart when he was fired as a coach from Stad. So does Max blame himself somewhat for his demise? I don't think he should do at all. I, I, th- I would imagine he feels hugely in- involved or responsible is probably not the right word, but 
part of Domini's success is 100% attributed to Max Guazzini and all the great things that he delivered and all the joy that he brought to so many rugby fans as, and, and also French rugby fans obviously are attributed to Domi, but are also attributed to Max because it's Max that created the environment for him to flourish. He was like Max's son. Max will always have a heavy heart when it comes to Domi because of the love that he had for him because he'll always wish, just like all of us, really, you know, when, when anything sad like that happens and tragic like that happens, like, I wish there's something I could have done. I wish I'd known. I wish because I, I would have spoken to him. I would have helped. I would have done anything, right? It, to be honest, it doesn't even matter if they're not even my friend. I would do that for anybody. And when it's your best mate or somebody that you, you know, see and love and cherish as much as Max did towards Domi, it, it'll, you know, rip him apart inside. There was a, a loving relationship between him and Dominici, mutual. Obviously, nothing sexual, but I mean, it was more than it was more than uh, just friends. They really loved each other because they had so much respect for each other, and they absolutely grew as people together. Because Dominici arrived in Stade Français. And he was like the pinnacle of expressing how Stade Francais got successful. He was a nobody guy from Toulon who came to second division, who then won it with them. He won all those, those, those uh, championships that I told you that they won in 1999, in 2001, 2003, 2000. He won, it, he won them all. In 1999, he then went to the World Cup a little bit out of nowhere. And he you know, had that semi-final against New Zealand that was just out of this world. And, and Max loves nothing more than a star, but not a star because he's indestructible. A star because he's like the clever, romantic, passionate, outrageously good player. And that's exactly what Christophe Dominici was. He was extremely ballsy. He was relatively uh, unique in the fact that he was small, fast, definitely not the strongest, but he some way, somehow always managed to find space and to do some incredible things. And he did it with such passion, such, I don't know, like you could say romantic, you know, he was a proper, he's a proper rock star, uh, Dominici. And that maybe that, well, that's what reminded Max of his, of his times in, at the radio and stuff. And they loved each other so much. So he contributed to making a French rugby icon, 100%. And hand in hand, they were there together nonstop. They were fusional. They had such a tight bond that it's completely different than what anybody else had in the team. And to the point where post-rugby career, I think pretty much Max would have, you know, open the club for him to have for anything. And Christophe was, was head coach. And I'm pretty sure that came from a discussion of, you know, Christophe is one of those guys that had to stay in the team. How can I keep him here? What do you want to do? You want to become coach? Done. You're coach because you represent everything that I want. And that didn't go well. And I think there was a brutal moment that Max had to fire the coaches, Ewan McKenzie and Christophe Dominici. Uh, and they got replaced. And I think even though Christophe stayed pretty close to the club, I don't know if there was any resentment between the two. It was a difficult moment, a very, very difficult moment. But it was for the better of the club and the team. And unfortunately, what happened to, to Christophe in the end is that there was no... He filled in the cracks of post-rugby with selfishness and, and some, some toxic behaviours. So Max felt that he didn't help his brother, his, his, his friend, his, his, the member of his family, whatever it is that you want to call them. He, 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 he didn't help him enough to make sure that he survived that really tough moment. So I'm sure this is a, a, a huge, huge wound in Max's heart and he thinks about it every day. Stad obviously gave Max so much joy with every aspect of its existence. So 10 years on, does he still miss it? 100%. I think if you ask him, he now lives in the south of 
France, near 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 Marseille and Cassis. He misses rugby a lot. Every time we speak about it, he's like, oh, the good old days. They will never come back. It's just different. It's 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 gone. But I think they they Stade was his baby, was his a huge part of his life, and I think he will do it all over again. Yes. Well, Mats Cazzini proved to be somewhat of an international man of mystery and impossible to get hold of during the three months we've been making this documentary. However, just when we were going to give up all hope, he replied in the dying hours and agreed to come and share his memories on the rise and fall of Stade Francais. We were delighted that now all these incredible stories and theories we'd heard could finally be set straight by the man who lived through them all. We started by asking him, how does it come about that a multi-millionaire radio mogul gets involved with a worn-out fourth division rugby club in the suburbs of Paris? I always liked rugby, and in fact, I would go to see the rugby matches in Paris from the club that played in Cologne. I was friends with rugby players. I knew the coach of the France team and all that. And one day, someone told me to come and see Stade Francais play, who played in the fourth division. They played in a tiny ground, and it almost felt that there was trouble around. There were these concrete stands, which were very small, where the wives and kids of the players used to play around in. Apart from that, no one else was watching, but I absolutely loved it. And at the time, I was running NRG, the premier radio station in France. I couldn't imagine that we, who could choose whoever we wanted to sponsor, whether it be Madonna, Michael Jackson, U2, Phil Collins, or Elton John, now decided that we were going to sponsor a fourth division rugby club. And then they asked me to be vice president in charge of communication, and I really hesitated. And then there were people who told me to do it, so I accepted the job because it was not me who went to look for Stade Francais. They came after me. And after a year, they wanted change. The president left and I took over. So I had to understand quite quickly how things were run, because I'd never imagined being president of a rugby club before. And so I said to myself, what do we have to do first? Well, we don't have a team. We don't have any players. And so we started by sorting out the recruitment with the help of friends that I had of Fabien Gaultier, who is now the coach of the French national team. And we created a first team. And then we went up division to division. At the time, I had met the president of the French Rugby Federation, Bernard Lapasse, And I had asked him, President, how many years did it take to be champion of France? He said five years, so as not to discourage me. But in five years, we were champions of France. We were the first club champions of France at the Stade de France in 98. And it was huge. It's huge because no one was expecting it. No one saw us coming. And you know this passion, this determination. We were like a family. And I believe that rugby is also that. We were very close to each other and we didn't care what people said about us. Max's philosophy on recruitment and on forging together a winning team was one of his greatest assets. A lesson he had learned from taking NRG from a basement in Paris to becoming the largest radio station in Europe. He knew better than anyone how to create an unstoppable winning team. For me, rugby is an adventure, a human adventure. It's leaving on a boat in search of a treasure that is the championship title. On the boat, we must choose the people with whom we will travel. So it's important to choose players with whom you want to be with and have an adventure with. Not people who come and go like that, not passing sailors. The first time I was told about Stade Francais, I was in a bar in the Saint-Germain district. I didn't know what it was, but I had this motto, we will become great again. And suddenly there was something to attach it to. I wanted to return glory to this once great club like I had experienced in the 19th century. We saw at Stade Francais people who have great personalities. I think that a great team is with players who have personality, who are good players of course, but have personality. 
we weren't interested in a team of average leaders. Well, one of the main adventures happening off the pitch was Max's greatest ever commercial invention, the Gods of Stad Naked Calendar. But how did that idea come about in the first place? Le Cordrier, c'était en 2020. It was in 2001. In 2000, we were champions of France once again, and I'd seen a photo of one of our juniors as a pin-up in a French magazine, who was naked with the ball in front of his balls. I thought, why don't we make a naked calendar like that? And the model is the rugby player. They've always been naked in the locker room since they were kids. It was amazing because it became a cult. It almost grew to nearly 200,000 copies, which was a source of funding for the club. And it was an adventure. But it was a handful of great photographers who came from the United States. People like Peter Lindbergh, for example. We got people who work with the most beautiful women in the world. Stephen Klein, who does the Lady Gaga music videos, they came with their makeup artist. They came with Madonna's hairdresser, Madonna's makeup artists, and their assistants. It was a big, big success. It's me who did it, and I enjoyed it. Well, the thing Max is remembered for more than anything else is his genius take on pre-match entertainment and halftime shows. And even more importantly, bringing hundreds of thousands of new fans to watch Stad play. So how did he achieve this? We're not like the others. The knowledge group known at Stade Francais was formed here, in Paris. We were not like the others. In addition, we always won and won titles. And to be even more different, we have music in the stadiums, young people in the stadiums, and the remote control car bringing the tea back. We had all these things. We had anthems that were big hits, pre-show entertainment. We made shirts with the Queens of France, with Blanche de Castille, we made Beaupont shirts. After the pink jersey, we offered a floral jersey. If we dare nothing, we do nothing in life. And what about staging games at the Stade de France? Well, it's true that at the beginning, the world of rugby thought, oh my God, he's crazy, Max, he's crazy. He's going to play at the Stade de France, where even the French team don't always play with a full crowd. It's like a rugby club going all out at Twickenham. But we always sold out. So much so that under my presidency, we played 20 matches at the Stade de France, and we brought in around one and a half million people. It's not bad, you know. Stade Francais under Metz Cassini ended up dominating French rugby, winning five titles in seven years. But when he looks back at those glory days, what goes down as his proudest achievements? The first time that we were champions of France, it was in 1998, and we had to come up from the fourth division to the first. The Stade de France was brand new. We were the first French champion rugby club at the Stade de France. It was an incredible moment. Most other clubs thought it was an accident or a fluke that we were champions. But when we were champions again two years later, that changed. They started to understand. And my other favourite moment was the first match I watched at the Stade de France because it was still a huge occasion and achievement. To sell tickets to 81,000 people when we came from a stadium of 10,000 people. I remember I was in the corridor of the Stade de France and I watched the players arrive. And me, who had known us playing only a couple of years prior to about six spectators in the lower divisions, seeing these crowds arriving at the Stade de France, I had tears in my eyes. I was like, what have we done to go from six friends watching to this? And nobody has ever been able to sell the stadium like we did. And I think it's going to be very hard for that to happen ever again in the future. Sadly, domination and greatness always eventually comes to an end. But never has it been eroded so quickly. For within merely a couple of years of being French champions, Stad were bankrupt and being threatened by the courts with relegation to the lower leagues. So how do things fall apart so rapidly? There were no financial problems for us before. We always had balanced accounts. 
The problem is that we put in an external advertising agency that collected all the money from the sponsors. All that. And that year, well, they went bankrupt. They didn't keep the money. They did something else with the money. We were the victims of a breach of trust. We lost a little over 6 million euros in the fund. It was Bernard Lepore who brought the agency in. The problem was finding the crooks, people who have abused our trust. And the case went to the Paris Court of Appeal last week, since in the first instance, they were sentenced to several years in prison. But that said, I didn't want to sell the club. I could have kept the club. But there was the risk that we would be demoted one division due to our financial problems. I didn't want that. Given the history of this club, I didn't want there to be a single day where we were demoted to the second division. We didn't have time to save the club because it happened very quickly. Those crooks who misled Bernard. I was a little discouraged and so I resigned from the club. Afterwards, the players told me that they would have agreed to being relegated to the second division. But me, perhaps out of Mediterranean pride, I said no. And then that's how I had to leave this club. It was terrible for me. It's one of the hardest times of my life. It was terrible because we didn't expect it. We never had a money problem because we had a lot of cash. But there was an accounting problem for the end of the year, the summer in April. But it happened and we had two weeks to find a solution. How do you find six million like that at the time in 2010? I'd given so much in the past and it was very complicated. And the solution that was found with Bernard Lepore was what we went with. It was as if an earthquake had taken out your house in a second. I was very unhappy. And what about the stories of Bernard Lepore setting Max up and then jumping ship when everything got messy? Surely this impacted their relationship. And talking relationships, how was Max treated by the new owner, security magnate Thomas Savard? Bernard Laporte, he is a victim like me. I've always been great friends with him. He was my trainer. It was I who brought him to Paris. So there must have been love between us. And sometimes he listens to me. Thomas Savard, he was there during this period of disarray. And he told me that I'm taking over the club. Do you want to be the honorary president? But I didn't want to be honorary president. And afterwards, as his family was no longer interested because they were losing too much money in the club, he tried to merge with our rivals Racing. I thought it was nonsense. In history, it's one of the greatest rivalries since rugby in France was born from the opposition between Racing and Stade Francais. And so I objected. So did the players and so did the fans. And we managed to make the merger fail. Max was famous for having a brilliant relationship with all his players, but none better than Christophe Dominici, who sadly committed suicide in 2020. How close were they? And how hard has his death been to deal with? Especially as Max had to fire Christophe as one of the coaches of Stade due to bad performances. Absolutely. Dominici arrived in 97 in Paris and he played against England at the Stade de France for his debut and scored two tries, one of which was overturned. And then the next day he calls me. Listen, Max, I'm with my family. I'm with my parents, my cousins. Can we come and drink champagne at your house? I said, yes, of course. And so they came over to me. They come to my house and I go get the drinks in the kitchen. And he follows me and he opens his blazer and gives me his first shirt. Do you know what the first international jersey means to a player? Frankly, I had tears in my eyes and I said thank you. He was a very affectionate person. With him and his girlfriend, we went on vacation together. We were very close. His death was a great trauma for me. Max obviously reshaped the rugby world in terms of what was possible both on and off the pitch. And his innovative changes to the entertainment around the game have now become commonplace worldwide. So does he go down as the most important and innovative man to work in rugby over the last 50 years? In terms of club rugby, I'd say 100% Max is on the brand, the marketing, the, the vision of a 
of a club. And it, he is it's still for me now the most visionary that I've ever seen in terms of just how well he read the market and how much he delivered to people. It was palpable. I mean, I've never seen, I've never been to a club in rugby where people would turn up for the unveiling of a signing, the unveiling of a jersey, you know, the jersey getting pinned up on the, at the, in between the Arc de Triomphe and people turning up all along the Champs-Élysées outside, queuing outside the Adidas store on the Champs-Élysées to get the jersey. I mean, in rugby, that is just unheard of. His genius is, is unparalleled in the fact that he captured the imagination, he had the superstars, he had the branding, he had the players, he had the narrative, he had the adventures, he had his own quirks, everything worked together. You know, he created a business and won, you know, and won the top division. You know, it's one of the greatest ever rugby stories. I think it's one of the greatest ever clubs in, in the world. And Max did it, you know, better than anyone I know. You know, he's the closest to building a franchise, an NFL-style franchise that had everything. You know, to do it where he took the team, to do it in the way he did it in in you know in the in the capital of, of France, to do it in the way he did it, I think he's he, he is right right up there, if not with the greatest. He totally transformed the face of rugby, club rugby. I think he's he was a visionary person that disrupted the entire model and brought an, an entirely new audience into sport. Like, and I, I mean, I could talk about all the stupid, crazy, wild shit that went on and. Yeah, and, and he was a, he, he is a, he's a free spirit he's a lunatic but he's brilliant he's brilliant he's an icon he's a he's just the most amazing human being in terms of a a disruptor for a, a, a product and and he did that right he he took a club that was in its doldrums and he's revolutionized it into making it one of the most iconic clubs in the world and definitely in Paris if you want to narrow it down to the professional era of French rugby, 1000% he's the most influential person. Because even Murat Boudjilal, who started this whole thing of recruiting top stars and, and, and uh, creating an event around Toulon, and that's how he, he, this buzz was always just there and, and, and pushing everything forward and creating a new economy within rugby. All that is just is the fruits of what Max started. And he's said it many, many times. He would have never even dreamed of looking at rugby if Max hadn't opened his eyes to, oh, actually, it's not just white, 30-year-old Southwest French who smashed the shit out of each other and drink pints. No, there's a lot more to it. And it's a lot more diverse and it's a lot more interesting and there's a lot more potential to, to make it bigger, different, brighter, funner. Although Max is near 20-year tenure as Stad, and it's sooner than anyone could have ever expected, and came with the darkness of high court battles, bankruptcy, threatens of relegation, and a new owner who cared not for the rich history nor tradition of rugby. If Max could go back and do it all again, would he change anything? This is a question I've asked myself several times. Even if we did make mistakes, I would do the same thing again. It's crystal clear, you know? I was very happy with NRG, the years or work I put into taking it from nowhere to becoming the biggest radio station in France and then Europe. Afterwards, I was attracted to rugby. I resigned from my position as chairman of the board of directors of NRG, and no one understood why I was leaving a position that had one of the most beautiful offices in Paris. People thought I was crazy, or I was going to kill myself. It was impossible to imagine. But we achieved the impossible. The titles, the players, the calendars, the shows. When I saw what Stade has become and what's been built, I built a stadium in the heart of Paris, the Jean Bois Stadium. Listen, frankly, I ask myself the question if I'm still missing rugby, and of course I am. 
But the thing which pains me the most is how my reign has ended so quickly to an unexpected and unfair event. This is a wound that hasn't healed, and never will.